0: Yeah, and it's been an eye-opener for me because i suppose i would have that would have been what came through in my training you know right the way through from medical school and and into my pediatric training and my medical training was (laughs) yeah the traditional fats are bad they're going to kill us even though that's what we've been eating for forever and we need to be trying to get all these new fangled polyunsaturated vegetable oils
1: You're listening to The Untaming Podcast. Rewild the child. Here is your host, Emily. Hi, I'm Emily and you're listening to The Untaming Podcast. Today it is the new worm moon here in the Southern Hemisphere and this is episode 43. I forgot to say before last week's episode that I chatted with Robin on video chat for a little while before we started the interview. And being in Indonesia with such a tropical climate, her house was so open, it seemed more like a, a large veranda. And not just that, but she was pointing to the neighbouring houses, telling me which of her family members lived there. Most of her grown children are living within walking distance. You know what? You know, what a wonderful environment for her grandchildren to grow up in. And wasn't it so sweet when her granddaughter, uh, Rimba, came to chat? I must have talked to her for at least 10 minutes. I just had to crop it in the editing. The entire exchange was just so heartwarming. Uh, Today we have a return guest from season one back to talk about nutrition. Uh, My talk with Katrina Walsh was a long one, so I have split it in two. In this first part we do a deep dive into salt and fat In the second part, to come out on the full worm moon on the 21st of September, we talk about sugar and anti-nutrients. So without further ado, here's Katrina. Dr. Katrina Walsh was born in Zambia and currently lives in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Katrina graduated from Cambridge University, England and Queen's University, Belfast, qualifying as a doctor in 1999. For 15 years, she worked in paediatric medicine in Northern Ireland, where she obtained further qualifications in paediatrics. Katrina developed an interest in paediatric allergy and how diet and lifestyle factors contribute to health and disease patterns, and so she became less reliant on the use of medications in the management of chronic conditions. In 2015, Katrina stepped away from pediatrics. She has since been awarded the Crossfields Institute UK Level 4 Diploma in Nutrition and Lifestyle Coaching. She now works as a Nutrition and Lifestyle Coach at the Food Phoenix in Belfast. Her goal is to encourage her clients to focus on nurturing and nourishing themselves to realise their full potential to grow and thrive physically, mentally, emotionally and spiritually. Last night she had about five hours of sleep and for dinner tonight she had roast chicken with root vegetables, uh, butternut squash and parsnip. Katrina, welcome back to the show.
0: Hi. Hi Emily, how are you?
1: Very good, thank you. We've just had like a nice little catch-up conversation prior to doing this. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it's been nearly two years I think since our last interview there were um, a lot of misconceptions surrounding nutritional advice that you shared with us last time that I just had to ask you back to delve deeper into them. Today we are mostly going to talk about sugar, salt, fat and anti-nutrients. Uh, One of our listeners was fascinated with what you had to say about salt last time, specifically the fear of salt. And you cited some studies where the participants had been given 17 grams of salt a day. So to start with, I'd love to hear more about the quantity guidelines for salt.
0: Yeah, wow. So, um, yes, salt is a pretty contentious topic and our, our current guidelines are, are based on this theory that if we have a lot of salt or too much salt, and with that being a, a, a kind of a, a vague term in our diets, that our, it'll put our blood pressure up and then because our blood pressure goes up, that'll increase our risk for heart disease and stroke and with heart disease having been the number one uh, cause of, of early death um in West- westernized popul- uh populations especially the usa and europe and uk and and um i guess probably also australia and new zealand for quite a long time um although now in the uk the number one cause of death is actually alzheimer's disease mm-hmm. this was you know like quite a, a big concern but the, the the um the theory behind it wasn't terribly sound probably for a few different reasons um, and i guess one of the important ones is because in the context of an American diet and I don't really have the figures for the UK which or anywhere else <laughs> because we're not terribly good at, at recording these sorts of things necessarily but in the context of an American diet you know like the top 10 causes or the top 10 sources of salt in the diet tend to be things like bread and rolls, um, cheese is up there, but then a lot of the rest of them are very ultra processed carby foods so it's it's things like, potato chips which are crisps in the UK and you know things like tortilla chips and things like mixed chicken dishes and mixed beef dishes and you know sort of Tex-Mex type foods and all of those rather um, ultra processed foods um, rather than real food Mm. salt is really a proxy in these sorts of societies for ultra processed food whereas if you think of the way that we've tended to to use salt and where salt has been well has been prized i guess everywhere but where i guess where it's been more most available has been coastal regions um, and if you think of the places where people think of mostly as being blue zones it's places like archipelagos in the mediterranean like around greece and sicily and italy um all those sorts of areas again okinawa in japan uh, nicoya in in central america uh, costa rica you know places like this, which are all actually fairly close to the equator. I think they're all within about 40 degrees of the the equator at the very most, and some of them, you know, a good deal closer than that. So quite tropical um, places where which are that are lovely and warm <laughs> for most of the year, but certainly in the summer, where temperatures will be getting well into the 30s. And and you know these these are places where people tend to do do a good bit of fishing, and there's a lot of salt in. In uh, in the water is easy to, to harvest salt. Um, so if you think of the context of their lives, um, where people would have been, uh, you know, spending months where with no no refrigerators or freezers, where the temperature at least during the day and probably even at nighttime would be well over twenty degrees into the thirties, and they were you know they they weren't necessarily um, getting fresh killing fresh meat every single day and having it just there and then. And the same with, with dairy. Um, they weren't necessarily using it all up. So foods um, that were that are popular there tend to be preserved in traditional ways, and that tends to be using salt, much more salt than sugar. Um, so if you think of even in the Mediterranean, a lot of the, the most popular preserved foods are things like cheeses and olives, which are very salty mm. Um, you've got your lovely Sicilian lemons, which are also kind of brined and, and lacto-fermented and salt. You've got all of those cured meats, um, the cured hams and and um, salamis and, and um, you know, all those lovely things. The same for, you know, places like Japan and Okinawa, where a lot of the, the preserved food would be, you know, well, so there'd be quite a lot of pickled preserved vegetables and also some soy-based ones like things like tamari and natto and japan and and other Mm. other fermented foods but without salt and in the absence of having fridges and freezers and um, other methods to to keep fresh food good it it would have been it would have been very difficult for for people to to preserve food and they would have been like living just day to day which isn't terribly sustainable Mm. so yeah so it's and the other thing is you know like not only is it quite hot for food and food will tend to spoil unless it's cooked very quickly and things like fish will go off extremely fast. <laughs> if you don't eat it immediately, um, you have to salt it. Uh, but not only that, but when the temperature is that hot and you are, you know, you're living in these little hilly islands and you're walking up and down hills and carrying things up and down hills and you're, you're working in, in gardens and farms and stuff like that, you sweat a lot and you have to replace the salt as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so these these people living in in these areas actually do tend to have a, have to have a fairly good intake of salt to maintain their their blood sodium levels. So, yeah, so I think that like a big part of of the problem has has been that observational studies looking at the USA have maybe found a bit of a correlation when they wanted to in certain populations with a higher salt intake, but they've ignored the fact that that salt intake is also... You know, it's a marker for a high refi- refined carbohydrate diet that's full of a lot of grains and and corn-based foods and potato-based mm-hmm. foods um and a lot of food that's, that's quite processed and ultra processed um, and they've ignored a lot of the again the the um the high salt intakes in the rest of the world you know and, and i guess you know the people will argue well the rate of stroke is very, very high in Japan, and that's because of all of the salt. but um you know there are there are other things as well that um I think can that that can be implicated there, like you know a lot of the the soy and and the the uh, smoking and things like that too mm. what 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 do you think, Emily? Well, um
1: okay, I'm just starting to wonder, like what about I guess we hear of these negative aspects of salt, but what are the benefits? I mean, it's something that we require, right? It's mm. something we need.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's um yeah, it's one of those essential nutrients. So, um and certainly when I when I was working in hospitals, one of the, the big things that that can be very serious would be low blood salt. It's called something called hyponatremia. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, most of my hospital experience was in pediatrics, so not you know, not looking after older adults except my very, very, very junior doctor year. But even in Northern Ireland, there was quite there there were a few episodes of severe um, pediatric hyponatremia in kids um, who, are very, who were very stressed out because they were undergoing procedures. So things like um, appendicitis. So this is going back a couple of decades now, mm-hmm. maybe even going right back into the 1990s. There were a few life-threatening cases of severe hyponatremia in kids. And a few of the kids actually passed away because of the their low blood sh- blood salt levels, um which was was pretty pretty tragic, oh. yeah. so at at that time, we were sort of trying to follow guidelines for what what people thought was your daily sodium requirements for a child. and mm-hmm. when we're giving IV fluids, so obviously, you know like kids come in they get surgery, they're null by mouth, they're not allowed to eat or drink anything um for, you know, like a few days, certainly, you know, just before the surgery and then at, during and, and possibly even after the operation, just depending on how things go and how well or unwell they are. Yeah. So we were we were giving fluids with quite low salt uh in them. Um not no salt at all, but quite low amounts of salt that would just have reflected what we thought were probably your daily salt requirements. And that was nowhere near enough. It was very dangerously low, um, particularly when it came to um, having the added stress of like physical trauma, which is, I guess, what surgery is and infection and sepsis um, and all those sorts of things. And and under those conditions in particular, you can have the, you know, you have these stress hormones produced and other hormones that help you to retain fluid um, so that you don't, you know exsanguinate or you don't bleed out or, or die from shock mm-hmm. and that, that tends to, to drop people's um, blood sodium, well it, it makes your sodium the sodium in your blood a bit more dilute um, so I suppose in paediatrics that those experiences really changed how we prescribed IV fluids so we um, after that we, we started to prescribe more and more salt um, and you know before that, it would have been something called number 18 solution, which is um, really a fifth normal. So normal saline is supposed to be like about the same same concentration of, solutes of sodium as uh, the blood. It's slightly more sodium than you would have in your blood. Um, a fifth normal is about a fifth of the amount of sodium that you should have in your blood. But it, it was supposed to represent what we thought were your, your sodium daily requirements. Um, and after that, we went up to half normal saline. And after that, we went up to normal saline um, routinely. Um, but yeah, it was it was kind of a a real eye opener, I think, for a lot of paediatricians mm. for the the importance of of salt. You're probably going to ask what <laughs> what happens to you when you have when your salt levels are that low. Yeah, yeah. So it certainly affects affects your cerebral function. So kind of drowsiness, seizures, coma. Um, and it can affect your your heart rhythm, um, and you can have arrhythmias and heart failure and organ failure. Wow. Yeah, but I mean that that's at the really severe end of uh, end of yeah. things. So you know, absolute worst case scenario that doesn't happen too much to people who are able to eat because you you just would be going to give me all the salt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know that doesn't happen to to the average person. who just wouldn't be taking a lot of of salt in your diet, but certainly, you know, if if you don't have adequate salt in your diet, you'll you'll be thirsty, you'll be craving salt, tired, and listless, no energy, demotivated, headachey, I think probably as well. I'm not sure how often. I mean, I'm sure at some point it gets to the point where you, you can't really sweat very much, but I'm not sure that a lot of people who don't sweat whether it's a low sodium intake that's the cause. I think it quite often that's more of a a thyroid issue. Right. And, and again, that would sort of go hand in hand with heat and cold intolerance and, and things like that. Low salt intake can actually increase your blood pressure. So a high blood pressure can be um, a result of a low salt intake. Yeah, I think those those are some of the important ones. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. I just, yeah, I want to catch what you said there about the high blood pressure and um, a bit earlier you said about the- the dilution because i want to talk about um pregnancy and salt intake like for reasons i don't understand pregnant women are advised to limit their salt intake but in more natural circles a salt increase is advised to allow for the increased blood volume Mm -hmm. so can you talk about this and how it relates to blood pressure
0: oh gosh that's actually not something i really looked into too much because i guess um clients haven't necessarily come to me with 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 those sorts of issues of pregnancy, I wouldn't see so many pregnant women. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly you you would have an increased blood volume, and the, you know fluid retention does tend to be a big thing with pregnant women. Yeah, Again, you know, with with pregnancy, obviously you've got all sorts of things like morning sickness and stuff that really complicate <laughs> complicate what, yeah, what what your your food intake is like, and it can be very challenging yeah. you know with the food and the mm. aversions and stuff like that but yeah i would have i would have thought you know certainly if you're having vomiting and everything it would be even more important to make sure that you're replacing your salt intake mm. um you know if you're yeah um
1: what about focusing more on blood pressure um mm-hmm. not not so much to do with pregnancy but if you have high blood pressure you're wanting to increase your salt intake to, would that help is is that where I'm, what I'm understanding
0: yeah so so people with high blood pressure high blood pressure um, seems to often be a, a problem a part of the metabolic syndrome which which is something where you have metabolic damage and that tends to be a, a mitochondrial um, damaging insult rather than salt being the problem there the the underlying issue seems to be well probably a combination of things but um, usually people, you know, usually you have a, a high refined carbohydrate uh, diet with quite a lot of sugar, quite a lot of gluten, could be quite a lot of potatoes, you, you know, often lower intakes of vegetables, possibly lower intakes of fruit. That would mean these are kind of associational things, whether or not they're they're directly Responsible, but there probably is a link with the whole sodium-potassium thing because vegetables would be would often be seen as a, a good source of potassium, and a lot of people feel that um, high blood pressure, at least in part, may be an issue with insufficient potassium or a ratio of sodium-potassium that's out of balance. Mm-hmm. What I tend to advise any clients who have a, any kind of metabolic s- syndrome type things, so that would be people with high blood pressure, um, obesity, high blood sugars, insulin resistance, type two diabetes, um, high risk of heart disease, you know, all of those sorts of things, uh, would be to go, you know, to swab onto a, a real food diet and to reduce the carbohydrates, especially sugars and gluten, um, in particular, but you know, generally a lower carbohydrate and a higher protein so I'll often I'll tend to tell them that they're not eating anywhere near enough um meats (laughs) in particular and organ meats Mm -hmm. especially but whenever people take out the processed food from their diet their salt intake kind of really drops drastically so I, I tell people to add liberal amounts of salt um to replace a lot of the the salt that they are no longer having in their diet. So I tell them to add salt to the table and cook their foods with salt and try to use foods that are naturally um, preserved using salt to try to make up for that because the deficit can be quite marked. Um, And I think that a lot of people who go through kind of um, keto flu or low-carb flu, I think the low salt intake can be a bit of an issue there as well. So that's where you have that kind of energy slump and Headaches and just feeling quite fluey. Um, Part of that, not the whole thing, but part of that, I think, may be due to, you know, like running low on salt. So, um, being very generous and liberal with salt at that stage, I think, can help with those symptoms.
1: Yeah. So, okay, I'm just thinking of like the minerals that are in natural salt. What has been done to refined bleach iodized salt and do these processing methods have a negative impact on us?
0: Yeah, um, good question. So um, I suppose table salt to, well, table salt to a large extent um, can be either mined from sort of, was was old dehydrated seas um, or obtained from um, sea salt. And, I mean, I, I think probably... Um, it's mostly sodium chloride with very little um, minerals. You can have mm-hmm. I- some iodine added to them it, not as popular in the UK actually um, Iodized salt is available here but people don't tend to use it very much. Some of the I guess some of the the concerns that are coming out about the sea salts though are related to kind of microplastics appearing in them because we've been we haven't been terribly good at at curating our use of of plastics and um, fabrics like polyester and and um, yeah. yeah, man-made fabrics getting washed, you know, in washing machines and then getting washed down the drain and ending up into the sea and ending up and um, getting, you know, turned into smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller particles um, and getting into the food chain um, and coming back at us. And there are, you know, I would have some concerns about that. So iodized salt... I'm, you know, I'm less sure about that because um, in the UK, we don't tend to, to really monitor people. It's very difficult here to get an iodine test. I don't, you know, when I was working in the NHS, you couldn't test people's, people for iodine deficiency, but there were some studies which would indicate that iodine deficiency was pretty rife in the UK and within, you know, Northern Ireland was supposed to be the iodine deficiency capital for the UK. And, you know, when people were getting tested for their thyroids um which is where iodine deficiency i guess will become would be most noticeable would be an underactive thyroid iodine deficiency was never kind of brought up either from either from the point of view of taking a history and asking people what their iodine intakes were like or from the point of view of doing any sort of testing like testing urine and, and loading with iodine and, and retesting urine so we don't use much iodized salt here and I kind of I wonder yeah I kind of wonder from a population level whether that's not a great idea I you know I don't actually tell my clients to use iodized salt either I tend to I do tend to tell them that they need more iodine in their diet and I usually suggest that they try and get that from seaweed mm-hmm. but yeah the, the iodine deficiency problems that we have in northern Ireland in the UK at least are concerning because we do we do have a lot of thyroid disease and it's by and large just it's just explained away as being you know like it's just thyroid disease and people you know people with it don't know whether they have an autoimmune thyroid disease like a Hashimoto's thyroid disease and they don't they by and large don't know whether it's something to do with a, a multinodular goiter or whether it's an iodine deficiency um, or what's going on so Yeah, it's it's an area that I don't think we do terribly well. So it's one of those public health issues, isn't it, with the the iodized salt? Yeah. Um, Like when you have so much iodine deficiency in a population, like what's the best thing to try to to protect the population as a whole, especially kids with their developing brains and everything? Yes,
1: yeah, exactly. And I guess by them having to put the yeah make the salt iodized it shows there's a real lack of eating iodine from natural sources right mm, yeah 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 mm.
0: yeah
1: so i heard that once there was this um a rule of thumb for purchasing salt was to avoid anything that is white like is in, in preference for pink, black, or grey. Mm-hmm. Basically, anything that's not white. But is there any truth to this? And you know, do you know what it is? Um.
0: I, well, I think you know. I think this is is supposed to be based on the natural the salts that naturally are are those colors. So things like pink Himalayan salt would have higher, slightly higher amounts of trace elements like iron and copper and, and other elements. Um, and you've got, you know, other, other places, you've got Hawaiian, oh, I can't remember what they call the Hawaiian salt. It's kind of a, a dark brown one, isn't it? I think it's quite a, one must be quite high in iron. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose the only thing that I would say is I suspect we're, get, we're going to be seeing, and we probably already have a fair amount of food fraud with these things. Uh, so yeah. I, I, when it comes to things like how or Himalayan pink sea salt, um, I hope that it comes from Himalaya, the Himalayas. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. But there's always this kind of like little part of me, you know, this little nagging thing that's like, maybe somebody just added something pink (laughs) to orange salt. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I I suppose the the thing is with a lot of these salts, I don't know that there is enough of the trace elements in them to make a huge difference to your dietary intake for a lot of those minerals or not. Um, but the other thing is, I think food fraud is probably fairly real, just because you can charge so much more money for an artisanal. Yes. Yeah. Um, that's true. Salt than than you could produce a standard one. So that's something that mm. I'm more aware of these days. would Be food fraud.
1: Oh, can I ask you? I just remembered about um, monosodium glutamate MSG. Mm. What can you share with share about that?
0: Yeah, so yeah. So, so, monosodium glutamate, it's one of these food additives. It, it's, it's, it's an amino acid, but it's not, you know, it's just out there and it's so So amino acids being the building blocks of proteins, what, our, what the proteins in our body and our muscles and all of our enzymes are made from um, is a number of different amino acids and monosodium glutamate or glutamate is, um, is one of the amino acids with the sodium added onto it. And it's basically that essence of umami flavour that uh, adds to the taste of things like meats and cheeses and yeasty flavours. So it's that quite nice mushrooms as well, just that pleasant, proteiny flavour. Yeah. So, in isolation, it can it can provide ultra processed foods with a proteiny sort of flavour that the food, but not not provide it with the the um nutritional value of protein. So you can stick it into noodles and um, all sorts of things and they taste better, especially whenever you add salt, extra salt. The way that our brain works, we use various neurotransmitters. Um, Neurotransmitters are are just um, signaling molecules that um, pass between different nerve cells. And the neurotransmitters in the brain are actually often amino acids with glutamate being one of the amino acids that are our, our nerve cells used to to communicate and to signal with each other um, and glutamate is one of the excitatory amino acids or the excitatory neuro neurotransmitters so there you know certainly with, with quite a few people um if they take in excess monosodium glutamate they often they may experience symptoms like headaches um anxiety a lot of people seem to suffer from things like poor concentration and focus so, so getting into kind of adhd sort of territory
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah so certainly there and and as well as that you know, like you can you have a lot of neurotransmitters active in, in our guts because our gut is like a you know a separate nervous or has its separate nervous system as well so yeah a lot of kind of gut complaints with the I think I guess things like nausea, sometimes even vomiting or um, IBS type symptoms as well. But it's 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 not something that is necessarily thought of by a lot of doctors whenever people come with any of these complaints. And obviously, the the management is that you avoid the processed foods. You know, going out of your way to avoid things like um, MSG and probably uh, artificial sweeteners as well. Mm-hmm to To try and um, avoid some of those symptoms. So actually, whenever I had kids with things like migraines, that was one of the things that I tried to get tried to get them to do was to cut out all those ultra processed foods and artificial sweeteners and MSG um, and eat more real food. And you know, a lot of the time, nearly all the time, if they were able to do that, their migraines would disappear, um, and they wouldn't need any medications. So, wow. um, yeah, yeah, so. Uh, yeah I wasn't a big fan of prescribing you know like a lot of medications that I could, so no. yeah so so yeah it worked it worked surprisingly well for a lot of kids, um, even even teenagers. Hmm. yeah,
1: just thinking and because you're talking about kids, last time we spoke, you said that babies don't need added salt, so how like would this be for the first year of life or the first two years or when they stop? having breast milk maybe, or is there yeah. any sort of guideline?
0: Um, yeah. Good question. I think it's probably just something that, that grudged. I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily something that's like a switch <laughs> one day. But, yeah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so probably. Um, pro- probably. And again, I think it sort of sometimes depends a little bit on the child because now and again you'll, you'll sort of come across kids who have a, a salt-losing condition and they'll just be craving really salty foods. So yeah, so as as you're weaning, so probably, um, probably more so from a year or so, but a lot of it will depend on your environment and um, how hot and sweaty <laughs> um, kids get, you know, the time of the year, mm-hmm. how active they are, certainly if they have any kind of loose stools or anything else like that. So. You know the the salt out can be salt through the skin and sweat, salt in the urine, salt in the stools, um, salt if you're vomiting. Um, so if if anyone is having, obviously things like vomiting and diarrhea, you know you'd use the the oral rehydration solutions. Um, it's hard to get some, hard to get any without artificial sweeteners these days. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, trying to make sure that there's enough salt and, and potassium there. Um, but yeah, probably. I mean, and as as kids get a little bit more finger feedy and start to reach for things, um, you you'll probably start to notice that they'll they'll be more interested in certain foods. Mm-hmm. Although I, I guess you know a lot of kids will often be interested in in a lot of things at a very early stage, and then get fussier. <laughs> when they get yeah. into their into their toddlery toddlery things. But yeah, so so I think, you know, even when you're looking at things like baby lead weaning and stuff like that and and offering them foods that, that you'd be eating and just sort of letting them sort of observing them as they're they're taking in um their foods. Like by by and large, I think the your salt regulation thing tends to work. Reasonably well if you can choose what you get to eat, because like when something is offensively salty, you'll not want to eat it. You know, so you kind of yeah. have have a feedback where if something is, um, if you find something too salty, you'll tend to not want to eat it, or you you know you'll be drinking lots afterwards. Um, if everything else is working well, and you but you know if your kidneys are working properly and everything else is working properly in your body, you will tend to. To rectify things yourself and sort right, things yeah. out yourself, so I, I think probably a lot of people, you know, there's possibly more of a danger of under-salting things. Um, but you probably don't need to add a lot of extra salt to um, to babies' foods before they're a year or so old. But um, mm-hmm. you know, if they're if they're eating some of your food or whatever, you know, see that as being a right, mission. yeah. Um, and then as they get bigger and more active and run around and start, you know, like lashing sweat out. So it's like, oh,
1: <laughs> yeah. So, OK, I'll wrap up salt now. But well, yeah, before we finish it, do you have like a very rough sort of baseline for like a lower limit or an upper limit to our salt intake? Or is it just like a salt to taste sort of thing for the upper limit?
0: Yeah, I think probably a, a salt to, to taste, um, I guess, you know, I, I think in places like Japan, I think the daily intake of salt can be something like 12 grams a day, but I find that, or yeah, I find it kind of like hard to imagine what 12 grams of salt a day is, you know, um, <laughs> whenever you're eating eating whole foods, it's certainly adding quite considerable amounts to to your 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 meals. So I think it's probably a lot of salty soups and things like that got made with dashi and stocks and fish mm-hmm. based things and um, salty salted vegetables and probably a lot of it is coming from salted soy sources. But yeah, I mean, I I think for most people, um, if something tastes too salty, then it's too salty for you. <laughs> can be good. Yeah, it's pretty
1: easy. Just go by your taste buds sort of thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm. Um and if something tastes quite bland, yeah, absolutely <laughs> <And> more so. <soft. laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: As simple as that. Okay. So something I'm really interested in learning more about is fat. See I only use butter, olive oil dripping and coconut oil when I'm Mm -hmm. cooking yeah yet at least at least here in New Zealand these are considered the bad fats you know they're (laughs) bad for you yeah especially they'll make you fat Mm -hmm. Um, whereas extracted polyunsaturated fats and hydrogenated fats like margarines and vegetable oils they're considered the healthy version I think they're actually even called the heart healthy fats Mm -hmm. here yeah Um, and I, I think they're even said to be what you should choose if you don't want to gain weight so I know there's a lot of falsehoods there to (laughs) explode so please go ahead
0: yeah yeah how did (laughs) did we reach this stage um yeah it's uh yeah and it's been an eye-opener for me because I I suppose I would have that would have been what came through in my training you know right the way through from medical school and, and into my pediatric training and my medical training was (laughs) yeah the traditional fats are bad they're going to kill us even though that's what we've been eating for forever and we need to be trying to get all these new fangled polyunsaturated vegetable oils but yeah i mean the the research again a lot of research seems to be based on theories which are you know they sound very good they're they're nice theories but they don't really um they don't translate into practice and then a lot of the a lot of the ways that that we've tried to prove these theories right it hasn't been by by doing experiments. It's been by doing observational studies on a lot of a lot of the time in Americans, sometimes in Europeans. So, yes, yeah, so I, I guess you know in, in the twentieth century, somebody came up with this theory that saturated fat was a cause for heart disease, and somebody came up with a related theory that was high LDL cholesterol in the blood was a cause for heart disease, and they kind of linked together because there's this other theory that saturated fat in your diet increases your LDL cholesterol somehow or other, Mm. but uh, the the problem has been there isn't really any good evidence that that's actually true, and quite conversely, the, the opposite seems to be true, so... Whenever people have done experimental studies trying to reduce, replace the saturated fat in the diet, you can replace saturated fats. And I, I guess, you know, another thing is that fats, natural fats found in food are a combination of saturated and monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats made out of like omega 6s and omega 3 fats. They're not just 100% saturated or 100% polyunsaturated or 100% monounsaturated. They're, they're all made from a combination of these. So, you know, whenever we talk about saturated fats, we just mean fats that have a higher proportion of saturated fat in them. But overall, nearly all of those saturated fats that we talk about are actually mostly monounsaturated fats anyway, or at least the, the animal fat fats are like butter and the fat that you find in salmon and the fat that you find in beef and fat that you find in pork and chicken um, are mostly probably a good 50-ish percent or about half, more or less, um, Monounsaturated fat, and at most, about half um, saturated fat. Probably less. Um, although coconut oil would have more saturated fat than that. It's just that the saturated fats shorter chain. But yeah. So when, whenever they were trying to do experiments looking at replacing saturated fat with different things, you could replace it with fats or food, foods rich in saturated fats. You could replace those with fats that have lower saturated and higher polyunsaturated fat. Or you could replace them with carbohydrates. Um, you didn't tend to replace them with, with protein. So, if you wanted to keep your energy intake the same, you, you had to, like, you know, when one thing went up, another thing had to go down. And looking at the studies where foods rich in saturated fats were replaced with foods rich in polyunsaturated fats, so that would be things like replacing tallow and um, lard and, uh, you know, the Taking, cutting the fat off meat and things like that and using vegetable oils instead like sunflower or soybean oil to replace those fats mm-hmm. and making spreads out of vegetable oils instead of using butter. Whenever you did those studies, it didn't improve outcomes. And there were some, some concerning findings that as studies were longer and longer and we're talking getting into six, seven, eight years um, of length um, these these experiments that possibly there was a hint that maybe for and it wasn't terribly a, you know it wasn't um, it wasn't um, conclusive that that you know even if you did possibly see a slight reduction in heart attacks the cancer rates were going up more um, and starting to starting to become yeah worryingly high hmm. and then there were other studies so that was kind of replacing you know the the natural saturated foods rich in saturated fats like butter and tallow and lard and drippings and stuff like that with the -hmm. vegetable oils So that's the sunflower oil and soybean oil in particular and then the the studies where they replaced fats with more carbohydrates so so using more grains uh, instead, they also didn't improve outcomes and there's been more and more and more evidence over the past couple of decades sort of indicating that heart disease is actually you know a mitochondrial a a metabolic problem with um, metabolic damage um as the underlying thing and that's that's not due to how much saturated fat or um, natural animal fats are in your diet um that's more to do with how how diseased your mitochondria are um and that's a combination Mm. of you know how much Toxins that you're exposed to and malnutrition, and you know, some lifestyle things um, as well, like lack of sleep, (laughs) Um, and uh, you know, and you know, a very sedentary lifestyle. But you know, out of all the dietary things, probably um, eating a a very processed, ultra processed diet um, that doesn't have much real foods that's based on, especially, things like sugar, gluten, soy and artificial sweeteners and artificial this and that, those sorts of, that sort of a diet is is really very strongly linked with problems with, with metabolic syndrome and obesity and all mm. those things.
1: Mm. What about, what can you tell us about fat and cholesterol and weight gain?
0: Yes, fat and cholesterol and weight gain. Um, so, well, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I suppose that the way I tend to look at, Weight gain is just slightly different because I I tend to look at weight gain as being more of a problem again with your metabolism and with your, your mitochondria. Mm-hmm. So anything that you can do to improve your metabolism um, should hopefully improve, should reduce sort of obesity and try to get your weight towards a, a more normal weight. So if, if you think of you know, whenever you eat and, and you eat kind of calories and those calories um, or those foods um, are what you, your cells burn to, to produce energy or convert into different forms of energy that your cells can use to, to perform functions, all those basic functions. Mm-hmm. If your cell is healthy um, and everything is running very smoothly and efficiently, um, it can take in plenty of fuel, Get lots of stuff done um, and it's very happy. So it'll just soak up you know whatever fuel is in your blood. So if you think of all of the all of the, the nutrients floating around in your in your blood, you've got like you know sugar in there, you've that's glucose, you've got um, amino acids, you've got and then you've got various fats and the fats coming, you know, in different they're packaged up in different molecules um, to help with their delivery because they don't mix very well with water. when um, you have healthy healthy cells. Those nutrients will just kind of like very easily get into the cells, get used up and the cells will do lots of things and you'll feel energetic and you'll feel healthy and happy and, and balanced and um, strong. Mm-hmm. As if you have diseased mitochondria, so the mitochondria are the the parts of your cells that are... Um, in charge of producing all of the, or practically all of the energy that your cells need to do all these things to perform functions. If your mitochondria are really flagging and struggling and they're not keeping up with demand, then they will actually start to tell the cells to turn excess energy away because they can't deal with it. So, so it doesn't matter how much energy your cells need, like if your mitochondria become too sick, they'll just not going to be able to to keep up with demand and it would become very dangerous for them to just try and stuff them (laughs) full of as many kind of calories from sugar or from fat or from whatever and try to force them to keep going even when they they don't have the ability to do so so in that case they 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 sort of start to reject those calories so those the sugar and the fats in your blood can't then get into the cells, they just stay in the blood. If the cell beside them is healthy, then go into the fat cell. But as more and more cells become less healthy, um, you get more and much more energy being rejected by cells and just keeps floating around in the blood. That surplus then will get taken up, at least initially, by fat cells and stored as the fat cells, um, as long as they're healthy enough for them to be able to perform that function. But when the metabolism in your fat cells starts to flag and those mitochondria stop working well, they'll start to reject energy as well. And that those calories, the sugars and the fats will just keep circulating in your blood and that will drive your blood sugar up. And that's where you start getting diabetes and, you know, insulin resistance and stuff like that. Um, So that's kind of insulin resistance, insulin resistance. It's not that your blood sugar... It's not – so insulin resistance isn't too much insulin because if you have too much insulin, like if you inject somebody with insulin, that drops people's blood sugar and that doesn't happen with insulin resistance, your blood sugar goes up. But at the same time, it's not a lack of insulin, at least in the early stages. It's not a lack of insulin um, because if you actually give people, you know, insulin injections, um, type 2 diabetes, you know, insulin injections, they don't do an awful lot – to improve people's outcomes and maybe just very, 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 very slightly reduce risks of, um, of a few things, like maybe things like neuropathies and stuff like that, I think. They slightly reduce the risk of, but they don't, you know, they, giving people insulin doesn't help them live long or anything like that. So the problem is insulin resistance, which is basically this issue with cells rejecting energy because they can't cope. They're working as hard as they can possibly work at the level of health that they have. So rather than trying to, to um, cut back on the amount of energy coming into the body, which will also, as a secondary effect, reduce the amount of nutrients coming into the cells and probably make your mitochondrial function worse. What I try to do, help people to do, is to improve their metabolic health and make their mitochondria work better and try to look at the reasons why the mitochondria aren't working as well and sort that out. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no. yeah, it does. I was just thinking more about going back to vegetable oils. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing that vegetable oils don't actually come from vegetables, that mm-hmm. it's just the term used to differentiate them from animal fats. Is that right?
0: Uh, yeah. There, yeah, there are very strange... It is a very strange name. I'm not sure why they call them vegetables. Most of them are from seeds, but coconut oil people don't really think of as a vegetable oil, and olive oil people don't really think about as a vegetable oil. And avocado. Oil, I think they're more
1: classed as fruit oils, aren't they? Yeah, like but people don't eat yeah,
0: and- They they are all fruits, but people don't talk about fruit oils either. Yeah. And the vegetables like soya, I mean that's a that's a pulse, but people don't talk about pulse oils. True and uh, yeah and, and sunflower that's a seed and people don't talk well sometimes I suppose people do talk about seed oils but it's usually they usually talk about vegetable oils I think it's more because people think oh vegetables are really healthy so they just yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I guess officially vegetable just means from a plant but yeah it's it's a strange mm. it's a strange sort of nomenclature thing that um, I think it's just to make people think of them as being healthier
1: Um, yes yeah
0: you know having a a halo halo effect
1: more than anything Mm. and now something i'm really curious about and i'm trying to balance my own family's diet is the balance between omega-3 and omega-6 now i I think i understand i don't know i'm not going to go into i don't really understand um can you (laughs) share more about the ratio of omega-3 and and six and the implications to our health when we have an imbalance
0: yeah, so so I guess so. The omega three and six; these are the essential fats. With so essential, just meaning that they are essential in your diet, not that they're essential for life, because all the fats are essential for life. But mm-hmm. they're essential in your diet because you can't make them from anything else. Sort of, basically. Um, so with the omega threes and the omega sixes, they're kind of the two two big classes of um, essential fats that you need to get from your diets. And there's a, you know, like for both of those, there's, there's a, a range of different sorts of fats categorized as those. The most useful of those, you know, the most useful omega-3s and most useful omega-6s are tend to be longer chains. So they have more carbons in them. They've, they're just extra big. And the, the least useful ones tend to be very, the shortest ones. For the omega-6 fats, then, the most common omega-6 fats are those found from plants, like especially... Nuts and seeds, um, and that includes things like sunflower seeds, and and well, any you know, nearly all of the nuts really. Um, but the the commonest form is the shortest form, so it's um, let me see, it's lino, linoleic acid, isn't it? I always get confused with linoleic and linolenic. <laughs> so I think it's I think it's linoleic acid um, is mm-hmm. is the the commonest omega six one in the body it it doesn't have doesn't perform a lot of functions directly it's more useful in that you can turn it into you can convert start to convert it into longer types of omega-6 fats that are more useful and and they they include things like arachidonic acid and uh, gamma linoleic acid Mm -hmm. so while nuts and seeds are the best sources of those, you'll you'll find the longer chained omega sixes more in some of the animal fats. Um, probably more in things like pork and chicken because they would eat more grains than the legs of red meats. And certainly seafood wouldn't have much omega six fats in it, but eggs and and poultry and pork would have Quite decent amounts of the longer chained arachidonic acid from the omega omega threes, and then the gamma linoleic acid is one that a lot of ladies might have heard of because it's one that you get in starflower or borage oil um, or um, evening primrose oil. Oh yeah. And and, yeah, and and people sort of often think that it helps with their hormonal issues and stuff like that. And then omega three fats, they are. So this is the ones that we talk about are fish oils and are fish fats. Mm -hmm. Um, And the most useful ones of those are one called DHA and EPA. And they're, along with the the arachidonic acid, they're very useful for cell membranes, especially brain um, and neuron health. And they're also very useful anti-inflammatory fats. And really... Well, with with the omega-3s, again, you can have a a very short chain omega-3 called alpha-linolenic acid, um, and that's the one that you find in things like flax seeds or chia seeds, um, and that's the one that you find in the plant kingdom. But the alpha-linolenic acid, um, it's very hard to convert it into the more useful EPA and DHA fats. It relies on having the right genetics and having the right hormones and having good nutrition and you know like a few other things as well so it, it's it's safer not to kind of bet the farm on having alpha linoleic acid ala uh, in your diet mm-hmm. to supply your omega-3 needs uh, uh, so you're better off trying to get your omega-3s in the longer chain which is the the fishy type one so that's the small oily fish <clears throat> in particular what they call the smash the wild smash early fish where smash stands for wild salmon mackerel anchovies sardines and herrings and then when it comes to the ratio of omega-3 to 6 um you'll tend to usually have more omega-6 in your diet than 3 but you don't want to have too much more so probably not having more than about four times as much omega-6 as omega-3 in your diet is is kind of helpful and it's if you're eating you know, like a real whole food diet and you're avoiding all of those those vegetable oils, including things like canola oil and rapeseed oil, which sound like they're a good, good source of omega-3 fat but they, they have the wrong sort of omega-3 fat that isn't terribly useful. Mm-hmm. So if you avoid those and you avoid the soybean oils and things like that and you don't eat nothing but peanut butter <laughs> and <laughs> almond butter and almond milk, it, it tends to be, you know, if you're eating real foods and you're including the small wild oily fish cod liver oil or something like that, um, and you're eating your red your red meats with maybe some eggs, maybe some poultry, maybe some pork if you can, um, all of those sorts of things. And if you can get away from having like a handful of nuts and seeds as well, we'll supply all of those. Hmm.
1: So that would, uh, like you mentioned before about the brain, so it would be very important, especially for like brain development, for young growing brains but also for like
0: memory retention would that be right uh I can't remember yeah (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) yeah yes yeah yeah certainly again the yeah your brain is is kind of it's largely um composed of of fat there's a lot of fat um in your brain and your 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 nervous tissue so it's very important for it for everything working properly so memory, focus, concentration, I would imagine probably also things like headaches and, and all of those sorts of things. Certainly if you've got any kind of traumatic brain injury, like if you've had a head injury, been in an accident or anything like that, making sure that you have enough of those essential fats, especially the, the long chain omega-3 fats and the longer chain omega-6 fats as well mm-hmm. as part of your recovery from that head injury. Those would be really pretty crucial.
1: If you enjoyed this episode, you can join the discussions on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To hear more, subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest, email us at
0: untaming.podcast at gmail.com.